So who here likes riddles? If you don't, bear with me. I have a couple riddles. If you know the answer, you can just shout it out and I'll tell you you're wrong. (laughs) Number one, a man stands on one side of a river, his dog on the other, they're alone. The man calls his dog who immediately crosses the river without getting wet and without using a bridge or a boat or walking on rocks. How did the dog do it? Bomsky, David, the river was frozen. Oh, yeah, very good. You're the first person to get that one. I don't feel so smart now. (laughs) Put a coin into an empty bottle and insert a cork into the neck. How can you remove the coin without removing the cork or breaking the bottle? No trick here. Woo! Man, it's a family thing. Wow. That's it. Push the cork into the bottle, pull the coin out. You guys, this is the smart crowd. I need to go back and study, I think. All right. A father and son are in a horrible car crash that kills the dad. The son is rushed to the hospital just as he's about to go under the knife, the surgeon says, I can't operate. That boy is my son. Okay, everyone got this one. It's his mother. Here's what's amazing. They've given this riddle to groups like on college campuses that are feminist groups. Between 17 and 20% get the right answer because there's ingrained in us the idea that doctors are always men. Yeah, it's amazing. Even groups that are like pushing for equality and women can do that stuff too. Like, it's amazing. So riddles, they're designed to force you to think differently, right? To see the world differently. I have a riddle today that might be the most important riddle. And it's this. How do bad Broken people, like you and me, how do bad, broken people get the good life? That's a riddle. And what we're gonna see in Acts 15, that's where we're at, you can turn to Acts 15, is there's a normal way of thinking that says, here's how you get the good life, and there's a way to think differently, brilliantly, biblically, okay? So we're gonna see both of those in this chapter. Acts 15, if you don't know, is one of the most important chapters in the whole book of Acts. Christianity is on a teeter-totter. Either it will go the way to become a Jewish sect that's underneath Judaism and it'll disappear completely, or it will be set free to become the transformational entity that God wants it to be. And Acts 15 is that teeter-totter. Okay, so first of all, there's the think normally crowd. Acts 15, verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers 
unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You can't enjoy the good life. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, if it's no small dissension, what is it? A big one. one. But Luke always says things that way. He's, He's an interesting author. And debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Here's your think normally crew. What they say is this, if you want the good life, then do something, try harder, be better. Verse five, have laws, have rules. That's how you get the good life. Every self-help book is based on that. It's a new law. Here's how you get the most out of your life. You gotta have this structure. You gotta do these things. You gotta think whatever it is, it's always a new law. This is how you get the good life, law. Or get in pain, circumcise them, be in pain. And there is a side to humans that says, the way that you get a good life is to put yourself into some pain, make yourself in pain somehow. Like we are a very punitive race, the humans are, aren't we? I'll test you on this. So a week and a half ago, whatever it was, two weeks ago, I think, when that boy went into the high school in Santa Fe and killed 10 people, what did you think should happen to that boy? Punitive. It's, and I'm not saying it should or shouldn't happen. Romans 13 says the government has a sword for a reason to punish the evildoer, that there's a place for that. But we're very much make things fair. Balance this. This is wrong what happened there. We have to balance it somehow punitively. So there is still in us this idea that if I keep these laws or if I put myself in pain, somehow God will look down and be like, my, 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 woo, look at little Matt. He's keeping all these rules. He's not using his air conditioner right now. Wow, blessings for him. And that's in all of us. And that's what these guys are saying. The Pharisee group is saying, the way that you get the good life is work and pain. That's how you do it. And the way that you evaluate any philosophy in life is simple. You just ask the question, does it work? Does work and pain give you the good life? Here's what the Bible's gonna say. Skip down to verse 10. This is Peter. We'll do this on Wednesday night. This is a brilliant chapter. We'll get there at some point on Wednesday. Verse 10 says this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? A yoke is always used for work. You put a yoke on an animal for it to work. 
a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Here's what Peter says, talking about circumcision and the law, work and pain, reflecting from his own life and looking back on the history of the Jews for 1500 years, he says, it doesn't work. It's unbearable. It will crush you. Here's why. If you believe the route to the good life is through work and pain, when there is a problem in your life, when you're not enjoying the good life, what's the answer going to be? Work harder, be in more pain. That's what you will do, right? Go to church more, read your Bible more, pray more, give more of your money to the church. Wait a second. <laughs> Keep that one, no. Right? Serve more, go on the mission more, whatever it is. It's more work, it's more pain. Don't use your heater in the winter. Don't use air conditioning. Wear clothing that's only made of camel skin. Look, God, I'm in pain here. Be impressed with me. And eventually, your own little Torah, your own little law, it will crush you. Oh, Matt, you don't know me. I am alpha male, disciplined. I can do it. Sure? Let me give you a test. Francis Schaeffer, who is a brilliant apologist from the generation before me, took apologetics and actually made it practical. Instead of like the philosophy thing where you're like, whatever. It's real practical. He said this, and I've never forgot it. He said, imagine when you were born, there was hung around your neck a recorder. And all that recorder did was it remembered the times you told other people to do something. So when you saw it, said to somebody, hey, don't lie, tell the truth. Don't steal, get up on time, make your bed, brush your teeth. When you, whenever you told someone else to do something, it just recorded all those things, recycle, whatever it is, it just recorded them all. And at the end of days, when you stand before God, God says, I'm not gonna judge you. You're gonna judge yourself. Play the recorder. Did you keep all your own Torah? Did you keep all your own rules? Who in here would say, yep, keep all my own rules? No, you guys are old enough to know, yeah, we fail. If you're young in here, boat Nick, you'll fail, okay? It's coming for you. We know that. It will crush you. So what Peter is saying is looking back on his life and 1,500 years of life, he's saying, no way, we will fail. It won't work. On top of that, that mentality created this group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the wrong kind of people. They just were. They were number one, very selfish. That the reason why they did what they did was to get more for themselves. So prayer was not gratitude to God. Prayer was rubbing the God genie so he would give you three wishes. The Bible was not learning about your creator. It was a formula to figure out so you could get more for yourself. Obedience was not a response to God's love, but rather trying to earn God's love. You became very selfish. And then when you became very selfish, the next step was this. They, or anyone that does the law, and anyone that does pain, you become very judgmental. You stop a life of faith 
and you start making a list of can and can'ts. And then you take your own little list of can and can'ts and you use that list instead of looking to the Lord. You don't pray anymore, you don't talk. You just, I got my list, just do what it tells me. And then you use that same list to gauge the spirituality of everybody else, right? Oh, they have a big screen TV. Sinner. I only have a 21 inch one. I am not extravagant. You don't homeschool your kids. Oh, you are ruining them. What? You drive that kind of car? I drive a Yugo. It doesn't actually go, but I drive it when I can. Right? That's what you do. You have this list and then you use that list and you place it over everybody else to see if they match your God approved list and use it to gauge the spirituality of everybody else. All right? You become very judgmental. And you know why I know all this? Because it's me. It's me. That Pharisee's inside of me. I was raised in a church that what I got from church and right or wrong, I got that church work in pain. I got verses one through five. That's what I got. That if you will work hard enough and put yourself in enough pain, God will look down at you and be like, ooh, yeah, I'll bless you. I got that. So I admire that. Like the Pharisees, this group, they would run around and they wore what was called a phylactery. It was this black box that inside of it was a little Bible and they would literally strap it to their head or to their arm. I've been to Israel, they still still, still wear them, right? So that's in me. I see somebody walking down the road with their Bible, guess what I think? Man, that's a good Christian. They can be an absolute jerk and full of all kinds of sin, but got your Bible, you're, woo, look at you. Yeah, little Billy Graham there. It's in me. Right? Pharisee literally means the set apart ones. The ones that were pushing off against culture, saying, we are going to dress, act in a way that demonstrates we're not part of that culture, that corrupt culture. And that's still in me. Like I had this conversation and it was so impactful for me for where I was at that I've never forgotten it. I was standing with these two guys and this guy asked me this question. He said, hey, Matt, did you watch this show? And I responded, no, I, don't, I didn't watch that show. And I had to add on, I don't watch much TV, <sighs> right? I'm separate from that. The guy next to me said, well, have you seen this show? And the guy said, no, I don't own a TV. And I was like, no, you're better than me. I gotta go kill my TV now. I want that answer. And I had to really go home and search, why am I doing that? Because I'm still trapped in the work pain way of relating to God that I think it's through circumcision and through the law that I get the good life. See, I admired the Pharisees. The only problem with that is this, Jesus didn't. The majority of the gospels where Jesus is correcting a group of people outside of his disciples is the Pharisees over and over and over again. Jesus is saying to them, your work and your pain will not get you what you want. It won't get you what you want, Pharisees. I'm trying to set you free from that. In fact, Jesus gave these riddles all the time. We call them parables. They're just riddles. And a riddle makes you, forces you to do exactly what a riddle does. It makes you think differently. And Jesus was trying to get his 
message across to the Pharisees by getting them to think differently. So how, when we look at the riddle of how do bad, broken people like you and me get the good life? If it's not work and pain, what is it? Well, we get the answer. Look down at verse eight. And God, who knows the heart, huge, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by pain, by law, by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11 is the key. But we believe that we will be saved, will be brought into the good life through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So huge. How do you get the good life? Not work and pain, law and circumcision. You get it by faith and grace. That that's what gets you in. And when you get that the good life comes through grace and faith, the whole world looks differently. That we don't get it through law. We don't get it through circumcision. We get it by grace through faith. Here's the pushback. When I start sharing this with people like me that grew up in like my kind of church that was hyper-legalistic, you don't know, we didn't celebrate we didn't celebrate holidays. We weren't allowed to have TV. Um, we, we were guns, golden God. Like we, uh, my mom bought hundreds of pounds of wheat berries because the end was coming. God was gonna pound the world, right? And so we had, we had our wheat berries and it was also like protect them. So Jesus may love you, but if you get our wheat berries, we will shoot you and kill you. Which is always like a strange, like that doesn't seem right. Until you eat the wheat berries and you're like, please steal them. I don't want them. Right? So I had that background. And so when I talk to people about this and try to, hey, work and pain don't do it, my pushback is always this. Number one, if that's true, if the law and circumcision don't do it, why are there so many laws in the Bible? If God knows they don't work, why do you give all the laws? Which is a good pushback. What's the answer to that? Well, look at Galatians 3. If you struggle with legalism, if you struggle with this idea, just read and reread Galatians 3. And verse 19 gives us the answer to, why is there so much law? And verse 19 says this, the law was added because of transgression. That God kept adding laws because the people kept breaking them. So when you read the Old Testament, and by the way, we should be in the Old Testament. It is the root from which grace grows. If you don't know the Old Testament, grace always withers because you don't have something to push off of. So what you see in the Old Testament is there's this cycle. The children of Israel sin, God gives more rules. Children of Israel sin, God gives more rules. Children of Israel sin, it's just repeated so much so that you and I get it. So what God wanted is Exodus 19. He says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests, that you love me and you serve me, not because I'm forcing it, but because you want to. 
You serve me because of that. I'm wanting you to be a kingdom of priests. And so he invites them up to the mountain. They disobey him. Guess what chapter 20 is? The 10 commandments, the law. And that cycle of God wooing them and and then disobedience and then more law is repeated over and over and over. The law was added because of transgression. Here's how I explain it. It's like this. If you're a parent, you're raising kids. So you have a 16 year old and that 16 year old comes to you and he or she wants to borrow the car. So they ask, hey, mom, hey, dad, can I borrow the car? And you're wanting to raise an adult. So you're like, okay, go ahead. Be back at a decent hour. Freedom, right? They come back that night, 2.30 a.m. The car is thrashed. There is nacho cheese sauce all over the steering wheel and the radio. It's smeared into the upholstery. The outside is filthy, dirty, muddy. A couple weeks later, mom, dad, can I borrow the car? What do you say? Ride your bike. No, you say, okay, be home at 9.30. The next day, vacuum the car and wash the car. What did you just do? You added the law because of transgression. Okay, that's the whole Old Testament. God does this over and over and over again. And the children of Israel are really good at breaking laws, just like you and me. But the whole time God knows it's not gonna work. Galatians 3.23 says it was to actually keep them safe from themselves. Because I don't want you to live in a trashed out car coming home at 2.30. I'm trying to keep you safe from yourself, okay? So Jesus comes and Matthew is unbelievable in this. He's trying to make a point. Sermon on the Mount and chapter 23, huge text. And it's this, Jesus says in both those, you missed the point of the law. So you are writing your wife a certificate of divorce saying, I kept the law. And Jesus is saying, you missed it. God wants you to love your wife, not give her a certificate of divorce. But you think, because you wrote out this piece of paper, you kept the law. No, you missed the point. You're counting your spices. Nine for me, one to give away. Nine for me, one to give away. You missed it. It's not about counting your spices. It's about being a generous kind of people. So Jesus in Matthew is just, all the law? It was added because of your sinfulness. The point wasn't keeping the law. The point was for it to shape you into the kind of people God wants you to be. But work and pain cannot do it, okay? They can never create the kind of people God wants. So we have law because people kept breaking it. And so God kept adding more laws, but that was never his point. Pushback number two is this. If you say that to people, then you'll just go and sin like crazy. If you say the way that we relate to God is not through the laws, not through rules, but just because of grace, then they're just gonna go crazy and sin like you wouldn't believe it. You ever heard that? I hear that all the time. What's my answer? My answer is this. What God wanted the whole time and what Jesus enabled was God wants our hearts. So flip back, if you would, to chapter 13. David is mentioned. And it says this about David, God speaking about David. He raised up David 
to be their king, of whom God testifies, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my law, my heart, and he will do my will. Why is he gonna do God's will? Because of the law and pain? Uh Uh-uh, because he's after my heart. What God has wanted from the very beginning was our hearts. I'll prove it to you. I'll give you some, I'll give you three passages in the Old Testament. I could give you 30. I'll give you three that show what God wanted was not law. He always wanted hearts. So Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you know your Old Testament, Deuteronomy is an eight hour sermon by Moses where he goes over all the laws essentially. And then at the end of it, here's what he says. Verse six. And Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And I add the good life. I've given you all these laws and all these rules. It can't do it. It'll keep you safe and separate from some stuff, no doubt. But the key is gonna be a time in history where God reaches in and changes your heart and then you will be able to do what you truly wanna do, okay? Then you can skip forward to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 is called the new covenant text. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. What covenant was that? It's called the Mosaic covenant of the law. The day the law came down, Exodus 20, what were the people doing down below? Yeah, worshiping a golden calf. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, no Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And then Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. How do you get your life cleaned up? Work in pain? That verse says, God will do it. I'll clean you up. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put that within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It's about the heart. I can give you a ton of these scriptures, a ton of the New Testament. Here's what God knows. He knows if I get your heart, the rest of you will follow that law and pain don't actually produce what I want, right? There are places that exist in our country that have perfect law 
but there is zero love. You know what the, you call those places? Prisons. Man, they, you got your three squares, you, you're take, all your needs are taken care of, you got all these rules and laws. Is there love inside prisons? Does a prisoner love his guard? No, because the law doesn't shape hearts. It doesn't change lives. So what God knows is only, only grace and faith changes laws, right? There's, there's two ways to change things. You can force it or you can feel it. You can put people in pain or you can give them a passion. You can put laws on them or you can get them to love it. And what God knows is this, the way to change a human is for us to feel it, get a passion for it, love it. Because when you love something, love becomes illogical and crazy, doesn't it? I'll give you my example. I love Volkswagens. It's stupid. I should not love Volkswagens, but I do. Every Volkswagen I have ever owned, you know it. Every Volkswagen I have ever owned has let me down in some way. The very first Volkswagen I owned, it was a 1962 Volkswagen Bug I bought out of a field in Murphy for $175. Fixed it, driving it, loved it. Had this one day, myself, four buddies, five of us packed in a little Volkswagen Bug and we're driving down the road. And remember, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a tire. And I thought in a moment, like, whose tire is that? And then I was doing 360s down the road going, oh, that was my tire. And now it's on somebody's front porch. I'm like, can I have my tire back? You ruined my porch. <laughs> Next Volkswagen, 1977 Volkswagen Rabbit. Brown, we call it the brown hair. Took a bunch of friends up to um, Stewart Lake and we're at Stewart Park at Lost Creek Lake and we're camping. Really hot day when we leave, come down, it blows up. Next Volkswagen, 1971 Volkswagen bus, Westphalia. Awesome vehicle. Driving it from college, Corvallis, up to a friend's in McMinnville to pick up his ski gear to go up to Mount Hood. And as we're driving from Corvallis to McMinnville, it's just this, this highway with no stop signs, nothing. And it's like 55, which is the max speed of my Volkswagen bus. So I never have to hit the brakes. So I'm driving along. All of a sudden, we come into McMinnville. I go to hit the brakes at the stoplight. No brakes, no horn. So I got my head out the window going, look out! I'm coming through. Like people are swerving and honking and yelling at me. And I, vroom, right? I can go on and on and on and on and on. Every Volkswagen I've ever owned somehow disappointed me or almost killed me. And I still have one, a 1966 Volkswagen bus. And I love it. Even though a couple years ago, I lost the brakes in it coming down off of Cloverlawn. Almost killed me. A guy said this after that. He said, the problem is not Volkswagens, Matt. The problem is you're the mechanic. I was like, how? It might be true. Logically, I should say, I will never own a Volkswagen again, but I can't. Why? Because I love them. Because it's captured my heart. Jesus knows this. If I capture your heart, the rest of you follows. See, I love to gather with Jesus's people because I love Jesus. I love studying the Bible because I love Jesus. I love prayer because I love Jesus. I love being involved in his kingdom and seeing kingdom work happen. Why? Because I love Jesus. He's captured my heart. It's not grudging submission with gritted teeth like, all right, fine. I'll serve, man. Oh, 
I hope you're happy up there because I sure ain't. Like God is like, oh, that's awesome. I love that you're helping out in the kingdom that way. No, and yet so many people run their Christianity through law and pain when really it's supposed to be grace and faith because your heart is changed and you become a different kind of person. And when that happens, when you get that answer to the riddle, you think differently. So Friday, I sat down when I'd finished this message. And I just said, okay, if that's true, how should my thinking be different then? If I live on grace and faith, not the law in pain, how should my thinking be different? Here's what I found. I wrote down 10 things. And they just, you know, simple. Boom, 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 boom. Here's how. Can I give you a homework assignment? Sometime this week, sit down in the morning, cup of coffee, cup of tea, whatever, bulletproof coffee, something, and write out 10 ways, five ways that grace should change the way that you see the world. It was so easy for me. You wanna hear my 10? Doesn't matter, you're going to, (laughs) unless you get up and walk out. Here's my 10 and then we'll be done. You become fearless. Instead of saying, I could never do that. You say it's based on grace, why not me? Like Jonathan and his armor bearer in 1 Samuel chapter 14, when Jonathan gets God's grace and says, God can save by many or by few. Why not me and you? Let's go attack that army. And they did and they routed them and started a revolution that set Israel free because they said, why not us? If it's not based on me, but on God's grace, why not me? You're fearless. Two, you're unpretentious. You just start to think about yourself less. It's not about what you can get or what you want or, you know, me, me, me. Instead, you realize, I don't need to make life fair. I don't need to make life balanced. I don't want that. I don't want fair. I want God's grace. I really don't, if life was fair to me, I'd be miserable. I want God's grace. It just makes you unpretentious. Number three, it silences the shame. There is a voice that speaks into our head and sometimes it's demonic and sometimes it's just from us. And that voice is saying to you and me, you're such a failure. How could you have? Why didn't you? Are you kidding me? You are a terrible Christian. No one likes you. You're this, you're that. There's a voice that says that all the time. The way that you silence it is grace. Sometimes you gotta say, hey, you're absolutely right about that. But it doesn't matter. I was chosen by the king and I'm on his team for eternity. And when he wins, you win, right? When LeBron James scores 50 points and the Cavaliers win, guess who else wins? The dude on the bench that never got into the game. He's like, yeah, I got a ring, man. What'd you do? I drank some Gatorade and sat. Pretty much, that was it. He gets a ring too. You and I, it silences the shame. You're on team Jesus for eternity. He will never let you go. Number four, it shapes the scenery. 
Have you ever watched somebody get blessed that you know really well and you think they should not get blessed that way? It should be me. God, why are you blessing them that way? Okay, when you get grace, here's what happens. You see, God, you are so good. Your grace is so giant that you would bless a moron like that. Wow, it's even bigger. Your grace is even bigger than I can imagine. Just shapes the scenery. You know how freeing that is for you? You know how good that is for your soul to think that way? Oh man. You compliment number five instead of compete. A lot of relationships that we have are based on competition. Who dresses better? Who drives a better car? Who has a bigger house? Who makes more money? Like this silent competition that actually infiltrates much of our life. It's this almost constant stress on us. It's unhealthy. When you get God's grace, what happens? All of a sudden, you're able to compliment people. Man, you are so good at that. Man, you're the best at that. You don't have to always, because here's what happens. You come to life full. Your cup is running over. You're not looking to people to fill your cup and compliment you. You're overflowing because of God's grace. You're able to just compliment out all the time. So you compliment instead of compete. And those are the kind of people others want to be around. And you find yourself making good friends. Number six, you're humble. You get off your high horse and you don't see, say things like crossed arm. Oh, I would never do that. Because like Martin Luther, you say, but by the grace of God, so go I. But God's grace has kept me safe from that kind of behavior. You're productive, not punitive. Here's what I mean. There is in us when something bad happens to us from somebody else, a desire to see them punished. Grace says this, God, you can use these circumstances to change me. You can use it to produce something in me. Romans 5, James 1. You can use even what the enemy would wanna use for evil right here, you can use it for good. So I'm looking what you're going to produce even through this difficult time. In me and even in the person that hurt me. I don't wanna be punitive. I want you to produce something in me. You have a perspective on suffering, number eight. You know that when you suffer, it is never God punishing you. Do you know that? I don't know what you're going through today, but if it is difficult and dark and hard, it is not God punishing you. God's grace tells us this, that Jesus took all the punishment you and I deserve. So no matter what happens in my life, I know for a fact, it is not God punishing me, period. You become a giver. You ever have too much of something? What do you wanna do with it? August, your garden is pumping out zucchini, 100 pounds a day, 50 pounds of tomatoes, jalapenos. What do you do with it all? Man, you take it to the work, you take it to the school, you take it to church, you always have a bag of it. You just wanna give it all away. When you actually understand how big God's grace is for you, and how overwhelming it is for you. You just become a giver. That's what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says. When you really get God's grace, you just become a giver. Then lastly, number 10, you live in a new economy. You stop trying to earn what can only be given and the dividend is shalom. You stop trying to earn God's love. You cannot earn God's love. He gives it to you. 
And when you get that, there is a shalom and a peace that lives with you wherever you go. To me, these are the 10 things that I wanna think differently because of grace and faith. And so Father, this day, as we come to the table, I know that there is in some of us, me included, a tendency to think normally in the terms of work and pain. I pray that as we eat and drink this day, you would cleanse me, cleanse us from that tendency. Cleanse us from the way that we look at you that somehow now you owe us something. Forgive us for that. I pray as we eat that you plant inside of us the victory of grace and it would shape the way we look at the world. That you would this day show to each person in here who loves you, who's put their faith in you, would you show us a glimpse of how great your love is for us. And maybe it be the gasoline that fuels us for this week. So may we eat and drink of grace and faith. And I ask this in your name, amen.